Start with our summary statement for this psalm. Psalm 120 longs for the peace of Jerusalem from the weariness of long exile. I'll go over that again. Psalm 120 longs for the peace of Jerusalem from the weariness of long exile. A simple outline for this psalm would be two parts, verses 1 to 4, speaking lies. Verses 5 to 7, speaking peace. Let's go over that again. Verses 1 to 4, speaking lies. Verses 5 to 7, speaking peace. All right, so we'll go to our observations for this psalm. Psalm 120 is an anonymous psalm. It does have a superscription, uh, a song of degrees. You can see that heading there in your Bibles. Um, The uh, superscription, the word for degrees, means ascent or steps um, or uh, a going up, and uh, we'll talk a little more about that later. But there is no author attribution in the heading of this psalm and nothing really in the text of the psalm either that would identify it with any particular author. Uh, And most likely this is a um, post-exile authored psalm. Um, There's no musical direction in the text of the psalm, but obviously we have the word for song there and the the Hebrew word that is used indicates that it is a lyrical song, something to be sung. Um, and that word occurs about 43 times throughout the psalms. Sometimes it's in the headings of psalms, and sometimes it's in the text. There's no specific occasion that is given. Um, the text of the psalm concerns being in exile far outside of Israel, um, but that's about as specific as we could get as far as the occasion of the writing is concerned. So to categorize, Psalm 120 is a psalm of ascent or a pilgrim psalm. It is actually the first of a group of psalms. There's 15 psalms that are known as the Psalms of Ascent. Um, That's beginning at Psalm 120 and going through Psalm 134. So this is the first of those 15 psalms in this group. And all the psalms in this group bear this same superscription uh, except that there are five psalms that add an author um, to them, four of those being David, one of those being Solomon, and the rest of them being anonymous psalms. Now this psalm um, does have a minor element that I would consider a minor element as a lament element. Um, it does have a direct address, petition, and a crisis complaint there in verse 2. Uh, there's a prayer of imprecations in verses 3 to 4. 
and a reflective lament in verses 5 to 7. So it doesn't fit the, the lament type it, it, um, generally or specifically, I guess, of what we have seen. It, is, it does vary from it a little bit, um, but it does have some lament elements to it. Now, the, the connections of, with Psalm 120. So obviously, um, the Psalms of Ascent, that's Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, they are a clearly defined grouping of psalms. Um, they share a distinct heading. There is connection throughout these psalms. There, there is sort of a, a flow of, of these psalms. They, they go somewhere from beginning to end. Um, they share a distinct heading. There's no other psalms in, in the psalms collection that has this heading, only these 15 psalms. There is, uh, again, a discernible upward progression to their arrangement. Um, they are called the Psalms of, of Ascent. Um, thematically, they deal with ascent or going up, particularly to Jerusalem, um, and also just in, in their um, canonical order, which would just be the order that we have them in, 120 through 134, there's a, a progression upward. Um, so really, we sort of are starting at the bottom here with 120, and we're going to work our way up by the time we get to 134. Um, there are some common themes in these psalms. Not necessarily uh, every psalm has, but these are very common themes that run through these psalms, and that's a pilgrimage to Jerusalem or Zion. There are a number of repeated phrases, and, and we'll talk about those as we go psalm by psalm through the group. We'll point out some of those. You'll see some of those phrases that are repeated um, there's the theme of return from exile. Um, there's a theme of Davidic dynasty. Uh, there's a theme of the house of Yahweh that runs through these psalms. And of the imagery that is used throughout these psalms, the most prominent imagery um, that's used is actually harvest imagery. Um, imagery of, of fertility, of, of high yield um, from the land and, and harvest type imagery that is dominant in this psalm group. So this group, as a, as a group of psalms, the psalms of ascent are about the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. And what we get in these psalms as we, as we look at them and, and go through them is we get the gathering of Israel and, and then the um, bringing of the nations to Zion to worship and the eschatological feast in the future kingdom. And so that would be the reason why we see the harvest imagery that is so dominant in this psalm. And actually, this psalm group echoes um, future kingdom themes. Um, and, and here's just a few places you can look at. Uh, later, and, you're, and you'll see echoed throughout these Psalms of Ascent. Uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 17. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 to 19. Um, Joel chapter 4, verse 18. Isaiah chapter 27 and verse number 12. Isaiah chapter 66 and verse number 20. So those are just some very obvious places um, where we see these these future themes of the kingdom, and they're echoed in these psalms of ascent. 
So Psalm 120, again, it begins at the bottom. In fact, it begins in exile far from Jerusalem, as far from Jerusalem as possible uh, as it's expressed poetically in this psalm. Now, when we, we're still thinking about the connections of Psalm 120, so that's obvi- the, the most um, dominant connections will be with the Psalms of Ascent. But there's also connections with the previous psalm, Psalm 119. Uh, and, and if you thought that the study of Psalm 119 was long, just wait till you get the recap of Psalm 119 tonight. Because, I mean, we've got to review it all because you probably, you probably missed some things. No, that's, that's just a joke. See if you're awake. All right, so Psalm 119, though, as, as we went through that psalm, we noticed how that the, the psalm does pick up on some exile themes. They come through in Psalm 119. And in fact, if you remember how Psalm 119 ended in verse 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. So the, the psalm ends with a wandering sheep in the wilderness looking for a shepherd to come and save the sheep. And so we start in Psalm 120 and verse 1, and it just flows very naturally from from the end of Psalm 119. And in fact, this psalm even expands on the theme of exile, which will be uh, a common theme that runs throughout the Psalms of uh, of Ascent. This psalm is also going to connect with other exile-themed laments. And so just an example um, would be like the Korahite Psalms, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. But really the, the, the... the lament psalms that have these exile themes in them, there's going to be a lot of connection between um, those particular psalms. Now, the poetic features of Psalm 120, um, one of those would be the structure of the psalm. So the psalm uses um, what is referred to as a staircase parallel structure. In other words, um, you get these two lines that parallel one another but but there's but there's a um an ascent there's a there's a there's a going up so there's a either making bigger or larger or some or something or going higher from the first to the second line and you see an example of this actually in verses four to seven it's pretty easy to see there how there's um escalation i guess is is the word i was looking for there's there's an escalation from the the first line to the second line um and it's talking about parallel things but it's escalating it so anyway so there's a series of two line parallels that build up and that's what you get um particularly when you see that the last part of that psalm um this psalm also uses the apostrophe which um poetically refers to direct address either to uh, a person or to an object or something that's not present and so here in this psalm you get two verses of direct address to the enemies of the psalmist. Now, the enemies obviously are not present and are not hearing and answering what's being said. Um, There's also some imagery. Slanderous falsehoods in this psalm um, are depicted as being like sharp arrows and burning coals. And we also get, um, poetically, the use of distance extremes. And so... One way that you might say this is, uh, and one, one we've seen, uh, we saw recently, in fact, in Psalm 103, uh, as far as the east is from the west, 
Um, we might say north from south. You know, those extreme points of the compass. Well, we're not given north, south, east, or west direction, but there are, there are geographic extremes that are used um, to essentially to depict being as far away from home as possible, home being Jerusalem. And that is, now Jerusalem, the city itself, is not mentioned in this psalm, um, but Jerusalem is, is a dominant theme um, going throughout the psalms of ascent. And so the exile theme obviously uh, implies um, Jerusalem. All right, so let's work our way through this psalm. Only seven verses, um, so we'll see uh, how long it takes us to get through these seven verses. I'll go ahead and read this. In my distress, I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given unto thee, or what shall be done unto thee, thou false tongue? Sharp arrows of the mighty with coals of juniper. Woe is me that I sojourn in Mesic that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. My soul hath long dwelt with him that hateth peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. So verse number one gives us an opening line of thanksgiving. Um, in my distress, I cried to the Lord, he heard me. Um, this psalm, so when you're looking at this psalm, it is a bit eclectic as far as we've talked about psalm types, uh, a praise psalm or a lament psalm, and, and you know some of those different psalm types. And so this one is a little bit of a blend of some, of some different types. And so we start out actually with a, a thanksgiving line, or, or like a, almost like a psalm of praise line. Um, and of course, it doesn't fully fit within the lament either, but does have those lament elements. Now, the word for distress that's used is, we've seen it a number of times, it describes tightness, being closed in, being you know, in, in, encircled or, or in, in, uh, encompassed. And it's, he's describing this distress, as it does in a number of other psalms, as being in exile among the nations, and so being surrounded by enemy hostile nations in particular. And that, and that comes out as you go on in the psalm as well. And so it's a closed-in place of trouble, but um, probably one of the key things to take away from the reference to distress, sometimes it's, tra- it's translated troubles, um, or tribulation, or there's uh, different ways that it's translated. But a key thing to take away from it is that it's it's a place from which the psalmist can't deliver himself. So imagine yourself, you know, if you're say you were you're tied up, or you were chained up, or you were bound up in some way, so that you can't move your arms and legs and hands and all all that sort of thing, and you, like you're you're completely enclosed, and you just you can't deliver yourself, and so that's. Um, really the key to under, to that, um, take away from that term. And the crying out and the being heard are common praise expressions that are based on covenantal prayers. And we've seen those things a number of times in the Psalms and particularly in lament Psalms or, or praise Psalms as well. Verse 2 then gives us this crisis petition. So the theme of suffering at the hands of enemies is introduced here in, in verse number 2. And we get sort of a, a piling up of terms. There's lies, there's deceits, and there's falsehood. So the, the particular suffering that the psalmist is enduring at the hands of the enemies are lies, um, falsehood, deceits. And that also shows us that the psalmist in this case is a righteous or an innocent sufferer. Uh, we've seen, uh, we talk about, when we talk about laments, sometimes we talk about a penitential lament. 
And that's when um, the, the psalmist or the lamenter is suffering, and his suffering has come upon him because of his sin. And so there's usually some confession of sin and, and such. So in this case, it's, it's the righteous sufferer, the innocent sufferer, the one who's being, um, the one who's being uh, uh, persecuted and afflicted, um, not be due to any fault of his own. So the slanderous accusations are the particular crisis in this, uh, in this psalm. And in verses 3 to 4, where we get, the, um, we get this direct address to the enemies, um, the apostrophe that we talked about earlier, are also what I would call mild imprecations. Now, so we've, we've looked at some imprecations, and remember, imprecations are prayers for um, judgment of condemnation, um, like, like essentially praying for God to cast someone into hell sort of thing. Um, condemnation, irremediable. Um, not, not just a punishment, not just a discipline, not just a chastisement, but a, a finality, a condemnation of judgment. And we've seen some that have been very, um, have been very uh, brazen, have been very rough, we might say. So these are somewhat mild imprecations, but still yet I think that they belong in that category. So we get a figure of speech. So like in verse 3, what shall be given unto thee or what shall be done unto thee? Now, it probably, when you read that in English and you look at it and you think about it, it, you, it it's, it's a little bit, a little bit tricky maybe to get a hold of, but the expression is actually a, f- a figure of speech. And there are a few places, I, I think, um, I didn't write those down, but I think there are a few places um, where this is used. And essentially what it, what it is is that it's, it's indicating a certainty of judgment. So um, one way that I, th- I think we could probably liken this to something in our experience is imagine that, say you had someone, could be a family member, um, could be a friend, whatever, neighbor, whatever, and and this person is engaging in some sort of of destructive behavior, whether whether they're doing something that's going to be destructive to themselves or they're doing something that's going to be destructive and and harmful to someone else. And so you've tried to intervene and you you have tried to you know, convince them of, of the problem with, with whatever it is that they're doing or, or attempting to do, and, and you've tried to, you know, get them to stop or to change or to get help or whatever the case may be. You, but, um, you know, in the end, they, they're just stubbornly committed that they're going to do this no matter what. And so you might say, well, I just throw up my hands. Or, well, I just wash my hands of it. In other words, You've tried everything that you can. You've exhausted all possibilities, and you've said, well, I, I, you know, they're not going to stop, and so whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Well, that's similar to what's being said here, this figure of speech in this verse. But instead of, instead of it being, you know, well, I've tried everything I can, essentially what this is saying is, is that I, I leave this in God's hands. God's going, to, God's going to judge these enemies for their lies, for their falsehoods. So I leave it in their hands. In other words, there's no more, um, there, there's, no, there's no reconciliation, there's, there's no way of, of overcoming this and what have you. It just, it's, it's in the Lord's hand. What more could be done? What, essentially, that's what it's being asked. What more could be done? And we see from the latter part of the, of the psalm 
that the psalmist has been trying to speak peace, but it, it hasn't. It hasn't affected peace. Um, they have only those enemies have only continued to hate peace and pursue after war or fighting. So there's nothing else that can be done. Now we get this verse in verse four, which talks about the sharp arrows and the coals of juniper, and, and we do get a little bit of a of a dual purpose um, in this verse. So. The, on the one hand, the falsehoods, so the lies, the deceits, and the falsehoods that have been spoken by the enemies that the psalmist is suffering under. So on the one hand, their falsehoods are like sharp arrows and burning coals. And we can find other places in the Bible where that sort of imagery is used for, um, uh, for our words, uh, like in Proverbs and, and uh, even in the book of James, uh, for instance, as we um, went through recently about our words. But then, then the dual purpose comes in is that when you, when you follow this from verse number 3, this, you see that this statement is actually giving a, a wisdom reversal. So the sharp arrows and the burning coals are what's going to actually punish the guilty. What more can be done? There will be sharp arrows and burning coals um, on them. Now the juniper, the coals of juniper here, actually refers to a type of broom plant, is what I understand, that's common in the desert. Um, and the, the wood of it, um, it, is, um, it burns well, it burns long, it burns very hot. And from what I understand, it, is, it's very, uh, it pr- produces very quality charcoal. Um, and so these coals of juniper that are being referred to is something that would have been um, common in that part of the world and would have been known and understood. Now, verse 5, we get this, what I've referred to as a, as a reflective lament. Um, woe is me, or woe to me. <clears throat> now, you might almost think that this would be common in the Psalms, but this is the only occurrence of this phrase, woe is me, or woe to me, in, in the Psalm. The only occurrence of it in the Psalms. Woe to me. Um, it's, it's a passionate cry of distress, obviously. Um, now, when we look at this reference to sojourning in Mesic and dwelling in the tents of Kedar, um, so this is where we're getting the, the geographic extremes reference. All right, so Mesic is a, um, was a place that would be in modern-day Turkey. So if you're thinking about Jerusalem as central, Mesic is, is almost the furthest away, far, nor, far northwest, of Jerusalem, Kedar would be far to the southeast in Arabia, um, away from Jerusalem. So, so essentially, it's almost like giving us two points of the pole with Jerusalem in the center, and these are about the distances furthest away. Now, again, it's poetic expression, so it's not necessarily well. You could get further away from Jerusalem than that. That it's poetic expression for those extremes. The point is the sojourning. And the dwelling is describing the dispersion of exile. That I'm as I'm as far away from home um, as I can be, and then it, and it accomplishes that effect. Verses six and seven then give us the psalmist looking for peace. Um, he ha- he's been dwelling among hostile nations, and they're persecuting, they're afflicting, they're oppressing, they're fighting. And we read here that the psalmist has spoken peace, loved peace, pursued peace, spoken peace. He has spoken of the peace of God and his anointed, um, but 
they won't have it. They hate peace and they're only for war. And essentially what we get from this is sort of like a sigh at the end of this psalm. In other words, he's wearied. He's wearied with being so far from home um, among uh, a strange and hostile people uh, who only love war and, and fighting and deceit and falsehood. Um, and he has no rest, which of course was prophesied um, of Israel in their exile, that they would find no rest among the nations until they find their rest in Jesus Christ in the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right, so let's go to interpretation. Psalm 120, and there's a, a number of things that, that is very common um, among the lament type psalms and things and and so generally when when we go through this interpretation I'm, I'm certainly not trying to cover every every possible thing that we might get out of the psalm but something that I've, I feel like is is somewhat unique to this particular um, psalm and its presentation so what um, Psalm 120 teaches that peace is not humanly achievable peace regardless of the means of pursuing peace. And, and if you've lived for any amount of time at all, you know this to be true, that, that whenever peace is affected or accomplished, it generally is only temporary. It, it may last for a long time, I mean, you know, humanly speaking, in our lifespan and whatever, it may last for a long time, but, it, but it's, it's never permanent. It's never everlasting peace. It's, it's merely temporary. So regardless of the means that we might use to pursue peace, only the Lord can bring peace, and only through his coming in judgment to destroy the wicked and establish righteousness. Now, we have seen, a, this is also a, a common theme in, in laments in particular, that there's an expectation that deliverance comes from the Lord in fulfillment of his covenant promises. And so in this case, this is where um, peace comes from, the peace that the psalmist loves and the peace that the psalmist is seeking. Now, the messianic hope of Psalm 120 is seen through this psalmist's hope to end the exile. So he's described as being in distress. He's, in, he's as far away from Jerusalem as, as can be. He, he has no peace with those um, that he dwells among. Uh, he has spoken peace, but they're only for war and fighting, and they, they hate peace. Well, what is his hope to um, end this exile? Verse 3 shows that, that there's a resignation here on the part of the psalmist that nothing more can be done. Um, and the distress that we see in verse 1 means that he must be rescued, and that's the word that's used in verse 2, deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceit. That, that rescue, he must be rescued from this. And though he has spoken peace, he, he only sees war in verses 6 and 7. So this will be ended by the arrival of the mighty one with sharp arrows and burning coals. So when you look at verse number 4, sharp arrows of the mighty, and that actually when you look at it in, um, in the Hebrew, 
Uh, it is in the singular, and it is the mighty one. Sharp arrows of the mighty one, the gibor. Um, the, the, the gibor is one of those terms that is a warrior term, and it is a term that has been applied to the Messiah, and particularly in his coming in judgment. So um, the Messiah as warrior king, um, here's some references, Psalm 24 and verse number 8, where we see this term, he's the king of glory, and he is the, the mighty one as well. Psalm 45, 3, where he's girding on his sword. Psalm 78, um, 65, where he is um, singing the the victory song, Psalm 89, verse number 19, and, and so on. So these are some places where this term Gabor is, is applied particularly to the Messiah when he comes as a warrior king to conquer um, his enemies. And not only that, but he comes with the sharp arrows and he comes with the coals of juniper. Now the coals refer to the burning judgment that he brings and we can see another place where, where he comes with coals, these coals of fire. That is in uh, Psalm 18, verse 8 and verses 12 to 13. Now, we get more explicitly messianic as we go through the Psalms of Ascent, but we certainly see um, this psalm, this messianic hope, is this is the deliverance. This is the deliverance from his distress. This is what brings peace. It's the coming of the mighty one with his sharp arrows and his coals of fire. All right, application. I have two of these. Number one, understanding Psalm 120 helps us understand our place in the present world. Now, we're not Israel. We do not share in the land promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we are not in exile. So I don't mean that we understand our place in this present world because of that. But we can generalize somewhat from the experience of God's people that dwell in the midst of hostile nations in the world. And this is exactly what the New Testament promises us um, as believers in Jesus Christ, it means that we will be hated. We, we will live among those who hate peace, no matter how much we pursue it. Now, obviously, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we do pursue peace. We love peace, and we do pursue peace, and it's right and good for us to do so. But again... We're, we're not going to achieve it. It's not us that's going to bring peace to the earth. It is, it is Jesus Christ who will bring peace to the earth when he comes with a rod of iron to rule over it. Number two, understanding Psalm 120 helps us understand our hope in Christ's return and his coming kingdom. Because oftentimes we, you know, we focused a lot on Israel and we saw uh, just there from the end of Malachi, how important um, that these promises to Israel are. You can see it again in, in Romans 9 to 11. Um, the, the setting aside of the Jews has meant certain riches to the Gentiles that we are experiencing. And Paul said, but if the setting aside you know, meant, the, meant that, then what will their salvation be? Um, so what will their restoration be? So 
we, un- we understand our hope in Christ's return and his, and his coming kingdom. It's, it's not just Israel that, that is going to um, receive you know, great blessings and salvation and deliverance and eternal life. No, we, we will worship him along with Israel. We will worship him um, uh, with the, and the world will have peace in his kingdom. Uh, just like Paul told the Thessalonians that those who, who sleep um, in, in Christ, um, he'll bring with him uh, when he returns. So if, if it is our, um, if we um, die and pass from this life as believers, then we go to be with the Lord. Uh, and, and when he returns to this earth, we will come with him. Um, we, ha- we are promised that. So uh, again, these, though these psalms speak particularly of Israel and, and their future hope, um, we have to understand that our future hope is bound up with them as well. And that if God does not keep his covenant promises to Israel, then we have no hope um, in future salvation. That's part of Paul's point uh, in Romans 9 to 11 as well.